0: Board. All right, so I'm here with Rosie. Now, it was Rosie in school? Is it Rosemary? Is it Rose? What do you want to be called?
1: You know, my family still calls me Rosie, but um, when I lived in I lived in Spain my senior year of college, and the Europeans don't do nicknames. So, and also Rosemary is it's not popular, but Marie Rose is, which is like okay. with my name reversed. Um, so I just switched to Rosemary at that point, and then and then I got hired, um, you know, to work as a flight attendant. And your your full name just comes up, so it, I just made the switch at that point. But I still have people from, you know, high school and grade school, my family. They still call me Rosie. So you could call me Rosie bill There
0: you go. There you go. <laughs> so yeah, like uh, I have people it kind of like catches me off guard sometimes because. I was 23 years old when I opened my business and, you know, nobody called me Billy. Like, that's just not a thing, right? Like my family would call me Billy if I went to a Christmas party, but not, you know, at work or, you know, anywhere I go. Um, guys all call me Geigner and then, you know, uh, what you're it. But when I run across girls I went to high school with, they still call me Billy to, you know, like that I was real familiar with. You know what I mean? Like if they were around my family, then they, call me Billy. And it's kind of funny because I'm like, I'm just so, I don't know. I don't feel old, but I've always been in charge. So Billy has this sort of like, I don't know, like jokey kind of like, you know, I don't know, like, a, you know, a kid name. And yeah, it's just weird when someone does. So I just want to make sure that, you know, it wasn't because Rosie's who I think you are. So uh,
1: you can call me that.
0: Good, good, good. Uh, So I want to hear Spain senior year of college that sounds pretty darn interesting uh how'd you end up doing that
1: well uh, I went to University of Iowa and I after the first year um I just ended up staying there during the summers because I lived in an apartment and you know I had my own life and um and just taking like one or two classes during the summer and so because I did that I was already done with all of my um, courses that I needed for my major, um, which was English. And so my senior year, I just needed more credits. I didn't need necessarily any specific credits, although I had already taken some Spanish classes. So by going and spending my senior year in Spain, I was able to get a Spanish minor. Of course, I haven't spoken it much since I got back.
0: Boy, so, that's version I thought would be uh
1: Yeah, no, my children. Spanish was really good then. Um, but you know, I've been studying French to, to work the French route out of San Francisco because okay. I worked as a flight attendant for my day job. And um sure. and you know, the Spanish trips that we have um just were not good trips. You know, it was like all nighter to Mexico City and um, I mean, I love Mexico City, but you just didn't get that much credit of time for how many days you were gone. Okay. Um, versus because the Paris flight is longer, you were able to get, you know, like double the pay in the same amount of days as, say, working in Mexico City.
0: There you go. There you go. So that's that seems like a pretty interesting flight as far as, like, I mean, Paris. I mean, that's got to be something that people – I think most people would like to see Paris at some point in their life and then you see it all the time.
1: Yeah, well, I was. I was going every week.
0: Well, before yeah. Pandemic.
1: <laughs> and, uh, okay,
0: so and I want to talk about that too because like yeah. your job, like, so how, is, how has it been affected by the whole COVID situation? And you know what? Uh, I, I said I was sorry, giving my condolences online, but I'm so sorry about your dad. That That's so...
1: Thank
0: you. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say. It's a, uh, my dad's alive and I don't speak to him. So like, it, it's, I can totally grasp the, you know, situation for you that like, you liked your dad. Like it was, you know, you were, you know, and I, I think I wrote that to you too. Cause I remember you liking your dad.
1: <laughs> you're uh, like, oh, She really likes her dad.
0: <laughs> yes. Right. 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 I remember being in my truck and driving with you in there and you're just talking and talking talking. And I'm like, boy, this girl likes her dad. This is uh, this is oh. something.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I was like his mini-me. We were, yeah. um, you know, out of everyone in our family, because there were four kids in our family, um, my dad and I were the most alike in terms of family members that were alike, you know? So, now, if I
0: remember correctly, your dad was an FBI agent?
1: Yeah, he was. Uh-huh.
0: Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, he passed due to COVID, did he have like i mean if you know what i me asking did he have other comorbidities was there something going on with them that was you know no, that- you know
1: um he was in great shape however he had had cancer um 10 years previously that he had recovered from and it never came back um okay. you know he did he did chemo radiation and surgery and it went away and it never came back and he um changed his his eating habits and his, um, you know, all of his habits to be so healthy, even though he was always somebody that worked out. Um, they told him that, uh, he had colon cancer with colon cancer. They said you had a 75% chance of it coming back if you didn't exercise regularly. So he exercised five days a week, minimum, he drank water that was, um, you know, um, clean by reverse osmosis. I mean, he was a very careful with his health. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: And so what happened was he, before they were saying um, that it wasn't, when they were saying that it was only a few cases in Seattle and New York, he got it in the suburbs of Chicago at the gym. He went to the gym, um, you know, for his regimen. And he came home and he told my mom that somebody on the machine next to him, um, when he was halfway through his workout, got on and was coughing up a storm. And she asked him if he changed machines or stopped working out, and he said, "No, I just wanted to finish because I had like 15 minutes to go." Yeah. But, you know, a couple minutes, a couple days after that, he had a cough. You know, and it just—it's. You've probably heard some of these stories, but his was one of those cases where he had a cough for a couple weeks and then it went away, didn't seem like anything, and then it came back. And so he went to the doctor, they tested him for um, pneumonia and sent him home. You know, They didn't even know that COVID was in the area.
2: Right, right. So
1: um, he ended up being the first COVID patient at the hospital he was admitted to.
0: Wow, well over the summer, a friend of mine's father who's probably similar in age to, to like your parents and my parents and stuff, he got it. And he had, I think he had survived cancer like four times. And like, I talked to the guy who's, you know, his dad was in the hospital and we were, you know, he was like, I, you know, he goes, I don't want to sound bad, but I don't think he's going to make it. He's on oxygen. He's never been on oxygen, even with cancer all the time and everything else. And he recovered. So like, you, you almost can't make any rhyme or reason out of any of this as far as it goes. And people think you can. And it's like extremely gross when someone's online and they're saying, you know, it only affects people who aren't healthy or old. Or, it's, it, it, it's un, I almost, I, I've never been like really accused of being a nice guy. Like that's not my thing, right? So, um, but it's almost astounding to me to see these people write stuff and it's like i don 't know if it's a for you it 's got to be a hundred times worse, but to see these people write stuff and and think what they think because that they, they want to or it's convenient for their political position or, or whatever it is it, it's just amazing how callous they can be when someone lost someone or something like that. I have a friend who's a yoga instructor she's got to be in her 40s and her son was 18, ran marathons, totally healthy, no comorbidities. He died from COVID. Um,
1: yeah, you just don't know.
0: No, you don't. There's,
1: there's a lot that they don't know about this disease. Right. And I think that eventually they're going to figure out that there are other, you know, not pre-existing biological factors, but whether it's blood type or whether, Some you genetic know, situation. there's something ju- to, where some people are predisposed to not recover regardless of how old they are or you know right um I mean yeah that that Broadway actor that died that was very young, I don't think that he had any preexisting conditions as far as I know, and he was also you know a young, healthy man, and sure, well, you know, they,
0: it's been that seven percent of the people who have passed had no comorbidities. They're relatively young. And I mean, people are terrible at doing math, I guess, because when you figure 300,000 people and just 7% of that, that's 21,000 people that really had virtually nothing wrong with them, got a cold and died. So, you know, it's- The
1: other thing is, even if somebody does have a pre existing condition, and this is something that I find frustrating Um, And hurtful actually is they just because they had diabetes or just because they survived cancer, they were not about to die.
0: Right, right, right. The metaphor that I've always put forth is the if you had cancer, even if it was terminal cancer, and you got on a plane to go to Arizona to visit your family and it crashed, you didn't die of cancer, you died of the plane crash. So I don't understand. The logic doesn't make any sense to me if i if I had terminal cancer and I only had five months to live, those would be the most important five months I wouldn't want to lose five days of that so like the the, the things they say it, it it's unbelievable that they say them, and then it's unbelievable even more that they shout it into social media where somebody that is affected by it could see it and be like they just don't care they they're, they're their political worship of some meatball is just so much more important than uh, being decent to people who lost somebody. It, it, it,
2: yeah. it blows me
0: away. And right now we're in a position where we're going to double this number in a short period of time. And I don't know. It, I I almost, I don't wish it upon anybody, but some of these people, it's like, Unless something terrible happens to you, you just don't seem to care unless it's exactly to you. Like, I just don't get it. I mean, before all this went down, like, I've paid a little bit of attention to the things you post and stuff like that. You seem to be an empathetic person and stuff like that before this situation. It bothers me when I see somebody who's pretty much a selfish piece of shit. And then when something happens to them, then they're all about being empathetic. And it's like, oh, I can't even... I can't deal with those people like, you know, like either care about people or don't. Um, But anyway, so.
1: Well, I would just say, you know, one thing that I've experienced is, um, you know, people, um, you know, make ignorant. I I don't don't go on social media that much. Like I don't go on Twitter anymore because it was too political for me. I couldn't keep my mouth shut and thought this doesn't help anyone. (laughs) Right. Um, so I'm only on Facebook and LinkedIn, which is professional. And then, you know, okay. Instagram, which is just pictures. So I don't see a lot of the negativity, but, um, I will say in, just in person, you know, you know, insensitive people as well as sensitive people, um, make comments, um, as nobody acts as if somebody amongst them may have had a family member die of COVID. Everybody thinks it's far removed. And so, you know, I've had people say in front of me, um, oh, well, the only people that die from that are, you know, they already had something wrong with them, you know, kind of thing. Or I've also, but I've also had somebody, you know, people say to, to me stuff like, Oh, can you imagine those poor people that are losing, you know, their family members and they're being sympathetic, but it's like, I still it's I'm in a work situation or I'm in a professional situation where, or I'm just talking to someone that I don't know that well. And I just, I don't feel like going there personally. And it's, I just have to sit there and sort of like, feel like I'm a denier. You know what I mean? <laughs> like oh God. because I just don't feel like engaging in that conversation right now. And, sure. and and it did like la it recently I worked with two people who kept bringing it up. And finally I was like, you know, my my I understand my dad died of COVID. And their response was
2: no.
0: Right. Wow. <laughs>
1: like I'm gonna lie. No.
0: <laughs> You're making me relive it for the last half an hour now because you will not like be quiet about it right that it yeah it's got to be i mean everything is i think the thing that drives me the most nuts about people that are empathetic or that are on the left is the the overwoke people right the people who are constantly trying not to like you're a midwestern girl i would i would assume that you're Fairly tough person to begin with anyway. So you could handle like, you know, someone fucking up and saying something stupid, but you know, you're not going to like fall down and like lose your mind or anything like that. But like people who are constantly, um, I see it, see it with the wheelchair stuff. Like, uh, I'm on a couple of uh, different groups on Facebook that it's more traveling stuff because when you're, I'm paralyzed from my chest down, and honestly, the air flight stuff, it, it, I hate it. I, it. They put me on that dolly, it's the whole thing's terrible. Um, yeah. So I avoid it, like the plague. But I do, if I, I do like to go places, so if I do, I try and find places that I can go that are gonna be accessible. So I go on these sites, and every once in a while, someone will post something about some nonsense about, like, please stop using the word handicap, and I get on there and I'm like, just shut the fuck up. This is not something that anybody that's in my situation is worried about. We've got the, all the same worries that you have, and then just a couple extra ones as to where can I go and how can I get there without, like, I don't want to have, I want to go have a good time. I don't want to have, you know, a problem, but worrying about, like, what somebody calls something, it's it, it just oversensitive, woke nonsense. But then on the other hand, you got to be aware a little bit of some stuff, too. Like, um, I'll have situations where people get pissed off at me because I like, I'm really independent. I live alone. I go everywhere I go. My sons have had thousands of wrestling matches. I've never missed any of them. Even if there was a blizzard and you know, if someone goes to open a door for me or something like that, like I got it, they'll be mad at me. And I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry. I know your heart's in the right place, but like, we wouldn't have left the house if I couldn't open a door. Like we'll be all right. Uh, so you know it, it's a real wacky world, and and it's just getting wackier. I would rather deal with the overwoke people though than the people who are. I don't know. It's it's like it seems like it's their life goal to be a dick, and then they finally got their president elected. So like you know, he's a dick, and like you know the whole thing's just it's just a fun thing for them. It's been fun though this whole. Not to get all political, but uh, Trump losing has been a blast. I thought it was only going to be fun for maybe like a week or 10 days. He has been (laughs) losing for like a month now. I know, because he loses like every day. Right. I follow him on Twitter and it is glorious. I just tweet back at him, please never let this go. This has been like the gift that keeps giving. It's just on and on and on. Every single time he loses, like one of the 60 court cases he loses, he just all caps, you know, I will win or we will. I'm Like, oh, my gosh, you guy. It's so shallow and small. It's crazy. But your job, not to like, I don't want to stand the COVID stuff like with your dad, but your job had to be affected. At one point, what the air channel was shut down, right? There was none. No international release, right?
1: Uh, they, they shut down most international. In fact, we don't have we still don't have most of our international routes. Uh, they laid off 15,000 flight attendants just at my company. Oh, wow. So I became, I made the cut, but I became much more junior again. Um, sure. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's its kind of a hard time, but I'm just grateful that I have a job.
2: Right.
1: It, you know, it just seems like somebody else always has it worse, you know I mean, i lost, I lost my Paris route, and I'm flying these terrible domestic like long days that I never thought I'd have to work again. <laughs> right. but you know what? At least I have a job, and um, you know, we closed our international bases, and I worked with this flight attendant who. She used to be based in Japan, um, and now she has the legal right to work in the United States. I don't know what her background is, um, how she has that status, but she does. So now she has to commute to San Francisco and work these bad domestic trips with me. And, you know, she's she's never worked domestic, united, you know, United States trips before. So you have these girls from Asia that have only worked international and half of their passengers have been from their home country now flying to like, you know, Vegas to Denver and they're like, what's going on?
0: Like the people of Walmart are on your plane, right? It's, it's a completely different clientele.
1: And I, it's different planes for them. Oh, that I, come I would planes. imagine
0: that the people going back and forth to Paris are probably more interesting people to begin with. Let alone, you know the, you know, uh, wife beater, you know, flip flop wearing uh, people that are going to Las Vegas. I mean, uh, that's a that's quite the difference.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, there's interesting people going everywhere.
0: Yeah, but interesting uh. <laughs> is an interesting word, right? Like, I mean, yeah. interesting. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, there's some interesting people out there. I don't want to hang out with them.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: So, but how about the job itself? um besides the fact that oh my god the whole thing's turned upside down and you're not going to paris you're in a metal tube with all these people now and then you've got like uh, i know a couple people that flew and people in the beginning were having every excuse in the world not to wear a mask i got asthma i got this i got that like they were just making up bullshit so that they didn't have to wear a mask i'm claustrophobic was my favorite one like this somehow is a thing uh Is there any, does someone get by on a loophole that they don't have to wear a mask on a plane?
1: No, so um, I missed that phase. So what I did was because I saw that our flight schedule was reduced by about 80%, I bid reserve, um, knowing that they would never call me (laughs) to assign me a trip okay we're so understaffed so that worked for about three months so the first three months of covid where they were struggling with getting people to um you know wear wear masks and also the airline was trying to figure out what exactly do we need to make our rule be um to get compliance uh they they worked that out because originally um they had said uh if children under two don't have to wear it, or if you have some kind of a condition that prevents you from wearing it. So right. course, that's where people came up with, well, then they realized, okay, that's not going to work because so they changed it to, if you're under two years old, you don't have to wear it. Everybody else. This isn't my company. Everybody else, you wear it. It goes over your nose and mouth. If right. you won't wear it, we're banning you from our airline and, no. any other, and any tickets that you have are, are canceled.
0: Yeah, forfeit, not, uh, right.
1: I think they might, I don't know, they might get a refund. I'm not sure, but we have to write a report and, and then they, they don't get to fly on our airline anymore. And so, you know, we ask them twice, you know, that most people comply. I think the hardest thing is people with glasses. Um, they need to practice.
0: Yes. Or whatever.
1: Because it fogs up on them and they can't read or they can't watch a movie. And, you know, I wear goggles at work <laughs> to protect my eyes. Yeah, so, sure. I have found to prevent them from fogging, what you do is you pull the mask all the way up and rest the goggles actually over the mask. Okay. and And that way they don't, it doesn't fog up. But most people who wear glasses haven't figured that out and they're struggling and they keep trying to pull it under their nose and it's not allowed to be like that.
0: Yes. Right. Uh, So. Yeah, no, I mean, right. People drive me nuts as far as that stuff goes. I mean, we deal with it with construction, you know, for a little while it was geographic. So if you were the closer you were to Chicago, the more compliant places were, the more strict they were with it. But as soon as you got out, like you know south of i-80 all bets were off like you would go into places and literally think that nothing was going on and it was it was crazy um actually my son went into a bait shop and had a mask on and a guy turned around and gave him grief about it like was like take that stupid mask off kid this is america or something like that And i'm like Like, thank God I wasn't in there and walking around. I would have ripped his arms off. I would have killed the guy. Like, I mean, if this is America, don't I get to do what the fuck I want to do? And you can do whatever the fuck you want to do. What are you telling me anything for? People get, I just, it just drove me nuts that they were this, I don't know, like vocal about their views and like imposing it on someone else just didn't make any sense to me.
1: Yeah. It's unfortunate that wa- mask wearing uh, was politicized. Right,
0: right. It's yeah. Uh, exactly. I mean, I always said the worst thing that Al Gore ever did for the environment was to go on those tours by himself. He should have taken a Republican with him, and then we wouldn't be politicizing the you know the the, the climate change and everything else. But um, well, the reason that I wanted to talk to you was I see the screenwriting stuff and. Now, did you go to school for to write? No, Okay, so explain what you do first because maybe I got it wrong too. I don't want to be, you know, you write screenplays or plays or what yeah, do you
1: want? Yeah. So, um, well, I went to University of Iowa, which is a, a really big writing school. And I okay. I started off pre-med, but I got sucked into the um, the creative writing department there because it was so good and there were so many wonderful authors coming in all the time uh, to give readings and, um, it's, a, it's an exciting, exciting place for a writer to be, um,
0: it's an exciting place for I, a wrestler to be too.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> <hate> wrestling, but
2: <laughs> right,
0: well, my, you know, my sons and stuff. So yeah, we're, we're constantly, uh, you know, we watch a lot of Iowa wrestling and stuff like that, but, uh, oh, okay. go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: Uh, so I, um, Well, I then I went and got my master's in fine arts and creative writing at San Francisco State University and I worked as a flight attendant, you know, while I was going to school and um, and I was really studying poetry, playwriting and fiction. And when I graduated, I had a book of poems um, published that won an award. It's called Sky Girl. It's about a flight attendant before and after 9-11 and that's published by Fence Books and i produced a one act play at the um, phoenix theater in san francisco about witches and then i um oh, wait
0: wait how wait okay witches how did you get yeah where did you okay so first off i knew that you were a flight attendant so i'm like uh i know jack squad about flight attendants i was i turned the tv on a couple of days ago and there is a series on hbo or hbo max or whatever called the flight attendant and i'm like i'll just check out one episode of this oh that was a mistake it's a complete i don't know if you know what it is but it's like it's no it's not any like it was nothing that was ever going to get me to relate to what you're doing it was like uh this woman is a uh alcoholic drug user um slut uh and a flight attendant, and she wakes up with some guy that she picked up on the plane, and he's dead. And then I'm like, Oh, I'm out of here. This is not gonna help me relate to Rosie in any way. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't, I never watched that show. Honestly, I don't want to like watch stuff about the airlines for fun, it just like stresses me out. I've seen enough people trying to put their suitcases in a bin when I'm actually at work, I don't need to watch it for fun at home. <laughs>
0: there you go. There you go. how do you go from you wrote poems about the flight attendant situation to the witch situation what uh are you do you practice Mm -hmm. witchcraft
1: no um i had a witch
0: on my podcast so i just didn't know oh
1: yeah no it's called the letter witches they were just sort of literary (laughs) um magical girls okay yeah um but then i i um started just uh, I had taken a few screenwriting classes, and I just got more and more into the screenwriting. Um, and so I've been focusing really on that for the last several years. And, um, you know, doing well, like winning awards. And this year, I uh, placed in the Nickel Fellowship as well as the Page Awards um, for their quarterfinalists, which is, um, those are the two biggest screenplay competitions. Um, the Nickel Fellowship is the one that's hosted, um, sponsored by the Academy Awards. Um, so, you know, I'm making progress and then um, I'm actually co-producing a short film that I wrote uh, with uh, Dave Usner. I don't know if you saw The Last Black Man in San Francisco but he's the naked white guy in it, if you ever
0: no, saw it. I <laughs> did I'll have to check it out. Oh, um, that's wild.
1: Yeah, and so uh we're we're co-producing a a film about that I wrote. It's about a family of deaf clowns um that they live in a forest and they have a little girl and uh, they come into the city to perform and raise money and um they have a tragic moment and it's sort of you could look at this as being um a superhero story you know um, you know when you see the flashback of how Batman became Batman or sure, sure. this is kind of like episode one of um, children of deaf adults are actually called CODA C O D a ch- child of deaf adults okay. and they actually have um, some interesting challenges that not everybody thinks about they're kind of like children of immigrants because um, sometimes they have to communicate for their parents with, you know, the store tender or, yeah, you yeah. know. Um, so they have some some additional responsibilities that maybe most kids, you know, kids with parents who can hear that don't have.
0: Right. So, now, do you remember the Legrands that we grew up with? Like April Legrand and Jimmy Legrand? And,
1: you know, I'm so horrible, I can't. I've lived too many places and I've
0: yeah. met too many people. Well their their parents were both deaf. Okay. So they had like the the um light things in the house that flashed if the doorbell went off and like all that kind of stuff. And they did have just like you're saying, extra responsibilities over regular kids. You know, regular kids, your parents take care of themselves. Now what you're saying resonates with me because like my sons and my daughter and stuff—they were—they were like, uh, you know, doing the lawnmower at at eight, nine years old. They were doing things that other kids wouldn't do because I'm doing a wheelchair. I'm not going to mow the yard. You're going to mow the yard. So, uh, yeah. they had other responsibilities over top of uh, you know what a normal kid would have, and they—I think it translated to them being a little bit more responsible as they grew up for things that they could do
1: yeah definitely I mean I think things like that that cause a child to have some more responsibilities can just add to um just their strength of character and that combined with their parents love they can really blossom into this amazing thing so that's where I compare it to a superhero um you know that that that's sort of the journey that this this girl in the um, the movie goes on. But so we're really excited because we were able to actually cast deaf actors. And um, they're actually a couple, which is great because it's the time of COVID. Yeah, so right. we're like, oh, good. One less thing to worry about. Um, sure. And then the girl that we cast, her mom is deaf. And then we actually cast um, her mom to play the older version of her it's, um, it's just a short scene, so there's no lines in it. The character doesn't have to be deaf. Um, obviously, the little girl isn't, um, but it doesn't matter um, whether she can hear or not, actually, um, in that scene. But so we were excited to be able to support um, the deaf community. And, and one thing that turned out to be really neat that I hadn't thought of you know, I wrote these characters because when I was in training center for flight attendant, we had a foreign language requirement and one of my classmates, both of her parents were deaf and her first language language was American sign language, which was, um, what informed these characters. But, um, uh, one of the things that's been really a blessing to see is that they're so excited about this project. And I realized that, you know, they're used to being sort of cast as like, maybe the deaf friend, but not having the story revolve around them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We're, yeah. We're, they're the central character, and this is yeah. about their journey. So it's been, it's been, um, it's been nice. We, we had to sh- push the uh, production back. We were supposed to film it last week, and it was just the COVID was, um, rates were spiking so much that we decided to push it back into March just because, um, you know, we don't want to risk anybody or their families coming to the set. So even though we're going to follow protocols and get the COVID test, you know, still nothing you do is a hundred percent, you know, because it doesn't necessarily show up for a few days or.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, you know, even with the the podcast stuff, I started doing the podcast because when I got injured, I realized that like one of my favorite things was to, you know, make some food, open a bottle of wine and have talk, have conversations that are, you know, more meaningful than like, you know, you know, the weather, or what are you watching on TV or like, you know, the small talk bullshit, like actually, and sometimes for some people, it takes maybe two, three glasses of wine for, for you to get there. But when people start to really have conversations about things, I generally think the general public's pretty stupid, but, everybody seems to know something about something that they know something about. So like, you know, I really like to hear about those things and then I can, you know, broaden my horizons and and like, you know, figure out what they're talking about. Like I have a whole mess of questions as far as how you're developing characters. And um, I ended up with a, like was not the biggest reader in the world, especially of fiction before the injury, but with time on my hands, I have a favorite author now, which is a real weird thing for me to say. But, uh, um, and his books, uh, John Irving, have been made into all kinds of movies. The Cider House Rules, and uh, there were, A Prayer for Owen Meany was made into something that was titled differently. But uh, um, there, there's like four of uh, World According to Garp. So, and. With reading those books, I think that sometimes the job that you're doing is villainized because you're the person ruining the book when it goes to the movie. A Prayer for Owen Meaning was ruined. It was absolutely <laughs> destroyed. I don't even know, like it didn't even make any sense. Like I watched the movie and I was like, oh my God, who did this? The, the person in the book is someone who's like, exceptionally small but they're not like this like the person in the movie was like uh like willow like like the 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 smallest dwarf in the world it was not a feasible situation for that character like the character was an outstanding wrestler and a really really mean dude and the the person that played in the movie he couldn't wrestle a koala bear like it, it was just terrible um so like how do you you're talking about developing characters and writing for characters are most of the things that you're doing a screenplay for something that come from some other literary work that you're taking and then you change into a a movie or a play
1: no my screenplays (laughs) are pretty much all based off of um a true incident um as its kernel so something that really happened and then i kind of um i study it that you know when it happened or if, unless it was firsthand and then I um, sort of the characters just sort of evolved from you know studying the situation and um, for example I just wrote um, my latest screenplay is about my dad um, I actually was planning on writing it before he got COVID um, I had I thought that my dad was such a, um, a great character because you know my husband would always say oh my god you da- you have to write something about your dad because you know he just had a hard time expressing his emotions and you know he's a classic dad from when we were kids mm-hmm. you know like men are more woke now or whatever um you know and he's this irish american guy who you know liked to drink too much and had a temper and what was really loyal and really loving and very good and anyways so I always wanted to write something about him so I asked him what um, his most interesting case was and he said the Diane Masters murder and so he organized all of his notes and there have been several books written about it and we talked about it a little bit. And we didn't have time to do our full sit-down interview with it because he got COVID all of a sudden. And by the time we knew he had COVID, he was in the hospital, so. Um, But, uh, so I read the books to sort of fill in some of the gaps of the storyline and um, actually have an appointment to talk to Ivan Harris, who was another FBI agent who worked on the case um, also. And so, uh, yeah. I mean, it's based off of our family, and you know, I exaggerate things. It, you know, it's kind of like taking silly putty. Yeah. You take silly putty, and you get a picture of whatever was in the newspaper, or whatever. But yeah. then you kind of pull it and reshape it and stuff. And so that's kind of what I do with my stories.
0: So, so was it when you read these books? Was it wild to read a book? Like, is your dad mentioned in the books that have to do with the...
1: You know, what's funny is he is, but sparingly. And he complained to me, you know, I remember him complaining when these books first came out a long time ago. He was like, these authors that write these books, none of them bothered to interview the FBI agents who worked on the case. And
0: it's like a really good idea because these guys literally studied what's going on. Like you could get a great summary from these people To be super smart.
1: I think what happened is that that case actually went on for so long and there were police detectives assigned to work on the case who worked on it for years, uh, very hard Uh, and didn't ultimately solve the case. Um, It ultimately moved to the FBI. Turned out that there were police officers um, involved, um, which was why the FBI had to get involved. But the authors that I read, it seemed that they had just focused their um, interviews with the police detectives on their portion of the story. Um, So. And I don't know, maybe the book was just going to be too long to, yeah, you, know, you got to kind of narrow thing. Sure, it's got to
0: be edited of some sort. Sure. Sure. I get yeah. it. It's just, that's pretty cool to, you know, have something that like, you know, that's my dad, like that's that, you know, in this story that, that's cool. And then what you're going to do, which would, you know, you'd be able to extrapolate, you know, your father probably better than most people do. And then you could definitely add to that character because you can, you can fill in the things that wouldn't be there so when you write this will you write it like like more like what person is it in are you writing it from your dad's viewpoint or you're writing it from a third person or um
1: yes yeah, screenplays are all written in third person okay because they're kind of like um directions for a director to read um you know, there's sort of like a recipe, you know, then you add this much, you know, so it's like, then Roger walks to the door. Okay. Um, you know, it's not, it's not like a novel where you can decide, um, which person you want to write it in.
0: Sure. Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, so then obviously when you write a screenplay, is this one set up where it's already, Someone's looking for this, or is it something that you'll shop around afterwards to see if someone will make it into a movie?
1: No, I'm going to shop it around.
0: Is that yeah? yeah that, that's is. I mean, is that is that a fun part of this, or no? Is it the worst part of this? Uh,
1: <laughs> well, you know, I'm making progress. I've already met with some different people. Um, I've gotten some reviews on it, really good. Um, good. But um, you know a lot of times I'm in that phase right now where people are like, you know, I think you should change this one thing, you know? And then they're like, oh, maybe if you change this one thing, (laughs) there's been a lot of fine tuning going on lately.
0: It seems like a, I don't know. It's never
1: ending. But, you know, that's why film scripts get written. There's like usually, there's often like 40 drafts. And I know when you go to production, you know, that continues to happen. Like the director will want to see some changes. The actor comes on board and he wants to see these changes. You know, I mean, it's just... And then, of course, when it gets edited, they can change things in editing. So, I mean, you don't really know what movie you're making until you see it, again. Right,
0: there are actors that are totally cut out of movies that they acted a whole part in and it's gone. Yeah. Why, okay, so why? Why do why it seems like the the talent or the even the school background you have you could write a novel instead and then I mean I guess there's an editor in that situation too but it seems like you'd have more control over your craft than you would because yeah boy oh my gosh there's a million chiefs in the process that you're talking about and then like my question would be like the casting person and stuff like that all would drive me absolutely up the wall too, because you have a vision in your head of who these characters are. And then they're like, well, we'll get Harrison Ford. And that's not who you had in mind at all. So like, why, why not write a novel instead? I mean, is it more lucrative or easier to get work in the screenplay industry than it is to write a book and get it published?
1: I wouldn't say that. I think it just depends on who you are and what appeals to you more. I mean, um, I, I'm a visual writer. I mean, even my um, poems had a lot of images, visual images in them. And so um, because screenwriting, the focus is um, the visual medium screen, whereas if you Think of a a theater, a play, you're mostly listening, it's mostly dialogue, right? The focus is dialogue. Um, uh, And then in a novel, of course, you can put all of that in. Um, I'm actually writing uh, a children's chapter book right now that I then intend to write as a screenplay. I realize that I'm my chapter book is very visual. It's almost like a screenplay just written out in prose form. There you go. Um, But, so I I think it's just sort of like, it's sort of like saying to somebody, why do you play the drums and not the guitar? You know, it's just. That's a
0: question, that's probably a stupid question that I would definitely ask. It would be like, you know, I mean, like,
1: isn't it easier just to play the drums instead of learn all those keys on like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, right, 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 right.
0: There's just being on the outside of it. It is. I I often do wonder why someone would play bass. Like, you don't get any (laughs) girls.
1: Actually, I've wondered that myself.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, my friend Tom McCoy is learning how to play the bass right now. And he's doing like, the so in the Midwestern, I don't know if they have them everywhere, but they have like School of Rock. So like they go there, they learn how to play songs and then they put them together in a band. I don't know if you saw the Jack Black movie, School of Rock, but they, yeah. they, so they do the same thing with adults and they throw them out there and they're like, all right, now you're a band, play these songs and they play a gig and everything else. It's super neat and everything else, but it, it, that's definitely a question that like the next time I see Tom, I don't want to ask him, you know, like online or anything, but like, or in a text, I'm like, why the bass? Why Why would you? That would be the one thing. Like, I mean, you know, I don't know. I think most people that pick up a guitar or an instrument, in a rock band situation, it's to get girls. And the bass player never gets girls. Like, that's not a thing. <laughs> uh, he's married, so I'm sure it doesn't matter. But, okay, so.
1: Right, when, I, my husband's a guitar player, but he doesn't play bass. Should I ask him what he thinks? Yeah,
0: of well, I ask him, I'm pretty sure the, the, the running thing is that. <laughs> bass players don't be the girls.
1: We were just wondering, why do you think somebody would would go into playing the bass? Like, compared to playing the guitar, lead guitar or drums or, come here for a second. This is my friend, Bill. This is Marvin.
2: Hi, Bill. How you doing,
0: sir? Good, how are you? (laughs) I'm doing well, doing well. So I got a buddy of mine who picked up the bass guitar, and he started to learn it a couple years ago, and I haven't seen him, like, out for a drink, you know, COVID, the situation. But my question's going to be, dude, why the bass guitar? They don't even get girls. Like, what's the deal? <laughs> <laughs> well, is he married? He is married, so he doesn't need he, to do He anything. doesn't need to go get girls. I, I'm not, so that's where my, you know, my it's life. Because
1: that's all his wife would allow him to play.
2: <laughs> right. That was a smart move <laughs> on the wife's part, for sure. Well, you know, there's, there, I think it's like positions on a baseball team. You know, like everybody has a different talent or feel or draw. When we when I play gigs and a little kid comes in, like a four or five year old, you can see they'll walk towards they know at four or five which guys they like and which instrument they want to play. So they'll just stare at the drummer or the organ player or the sax player. They just know. Oh you know, I love music
0: and I could figure that like if you're somebody who's got like uh, a really good rhythm, like if you're good at dancing and all that stuff, the bass guitar, like Flea is incredible. The, the, the funk that he put brings and everything else, he couldn't play anything else. I mean, he's a spectacular bass player, but uh, it does seem to be the more marquee spot would be, you know, like you're saying short to shortstop or lead guitar would be, right. the, you know, the, the, the spot to be. So.
2: Yeah. But bass also, it holds the whole thing together. Right, it's, yeah, the drummer's taking his So if you yeah. like being supportive as opposed to stellar, you know, it's, yeah. it's a wonderful support role. Plus, yeah. when you get older, it sounds better.
0: Yeah, but I had a 12-inch mohawk. I didn't want to support anybody. I just wanted to stand out all on my own. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I showed him a picture of you with your mohawk. Are you still a
0: guitar player? No, no, I was never a guitar player. I was a skater kid, like just, you know, goofball. Yeah uh i was an athlete more than you know the, yeah, and,
2: rosemary said you were a wrestler
0: yeah well that stuff too but i mean uh uh more football in high school than uh than, than that but my uh my started my sons out in kindergarten wrestling and they're supposed to be wrestling the ncaa this year but covid we took a gap year
2: so, yeah uh,
0: just working construction but uh but yeah i know i mean uh the music stuff is i'm very you know into music i've always got music on so I get the whole, like, you know, where do you want to be? And I mean, certain personalities, if you're a drummer, I think you've got your own, you know, that animal from the Muppets is probably, probably the, uh,
2: you know, key personality as far
0: as a drummer goes.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, so. Yeah. Now, I mean, if you want to get real cynical, uh, you know, when we were kids, the person played the bass who was the worst guitar player. Right. Because so I did
0: take two years of guitar lessons, and it was – I don't think that they ever got even to – it was all acoustic stuff. I don't believe we ever got to a point where they split us up into who wasn't very good at it and who was better at it sort of a thing. We were just learning chords yeah. and you know, silly little songs and stuff like that. But uh, um, well, same thing with baseball. Like You were making that, that analogy. If you're a terrific baseball player, you're going to play shortstop or second base. If you're not very good, you're going to play right field sort of a deal you know they're going to of out in the outfield but right. cool cool well good to meet you nice meeting you too yeah have fun <laughs> good luck good luck <laughs> uh i've seen the pictures up seems like a small guy uh right. what you call it um so but anyway so as far as the, the the screenwriting stuff i think you made a good analogy as far as yeah like why would someone do that It sort of does seem like you would run in more interesting circles if you're writing screenplays, right? Because you are dealing with all this other process that goes on where someone who's writing a novel, I don't know, might be kind of a lonely existence, right? Where you're sort of like in an apartment in a room by yourself with, you know, all quiet trying to think up characters and, you know, all that other stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think networking is more important in, um, you know, TV and film, um, because, you know, you have to meet people um, to collaborate with, you know, whereas you really don't when you're a novelist. Um, I mean, so, think
2: TV.
0: We would, now, would you ever want to do something like, like, that would seem like a lot of work. Like to write for a regular, like a show that's on, you know, like 13 episodes a year,
1: whatever they do. You know what, Bill? When you see how much they get paid for per episode, you're like, yeah, I guess I could do it.
0: Yeah, right, right. No, I would bet I you. Would <laughs> I mean, when I see a movie star go to doing a, like, a, even like a, a limited series on, on HBO or something like that, like a Game of Thrones or something, there's so much more work that needs to be done on something like that versus an hour and a half movie. You know, I mean, uh, yeah. Keanu Reeves is in John Wick and he does two hours worth of, of actual on-screen time. I'm sure there's more work behind the scenes, but someone who's on eight years of a sitcom, you know, I don't watch TV shows. I just don't find them to be funny. The laugh track bothers me and all that other stuff, but. The amount of work has got to be enormous for a writer so but is that a hard gig to get into
1: it is um you have to be in la if you want to if you want to be part of a writer's um group you have to be in la because they meet you know now now because of covid they don't but normally they meet in a writer's room and actually you know sort of work out the scripts together um so it's you know writing a collaboration um more than than writing a feature, um, so I've been writing features. You know, I think I could write a limited series, although I haven't yet. It's it's on my to do list, um, because a limited series and similar to a feature film, it has um, it has an end in sight. You know, my stories tend, I tend to have an how, an idea of how this is going to end. It's a, it's a journey that finishes. Whereas, you know, some of these things, um, you know, they just keep them going as long as they can. I know that they, they usually plan um, ahead of time how many seasons that they expect it to have. And they have a Bible and they have an arc they plan for it to take. But of course, it could change over time and... Um, you know, I don't tend to write things that are that long, you know, that are going to go on for years.
0: Sure, sure. So, um, so like, I, I have an appreciation for for like, you know, what you're doing. And I think that like, like I've had talks with my sons about music and stuff. And it's like, I, you know, the, di- the difference between you can have someone that's that's like great at playing the guitar, a really good singer and stuff like that. But, like the difference between someone who writes their own material and then performs original material versus just someone who you know covers bands and stuff like that it is you know for me it's a world of difference that originality makes a big difference um you know so like it seems like the further along we get, the harder it is. do you ever find yourself in a situation where you're doing parallel thinking or you? Write something and you're like, oh my god, that's way too much like this that's already out there. Do you remember? Like, you couldn't write a character that was like wearing a leather jacket and was like, hey, you know, they can't do Fonzie over again. But like,
1: well, I guess you, know, you could if enough time had passed. Yeah,
0: love, not that one. But, uh, but so, do you ever find yourself in a situation like that? Like, uh, Tom Petty had a song, and like eight years later, the Red Hot Chili Peppers wrote a song. And he actually sued them because if you listen to the two songs, they're the same song. And I don't know if the Chili Peppers knew it was the same song. Like, you know, they had probably heard the song and then just wrote their song and it ended up sounding very, very much alike. So do you ever try and make sure that you're not, there's so much out there, like you can't possibly have seen everything. So how do you avoid, you know, copyright or something like that?
1: Oh, uh, I copyright my, my writing um, as I go, you know, usually every few drafts, I'll get a new copyright either. I'll I'll use the US, um, you know, government copyright. But I also will do sometimes um, just an earlier draft with the Writers Guild because it still gives you some protections and it's a little cheaper than doing the copyright. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, it's funny because this has always happened to me. Um, I haven't seen everything, right? I'm, and yeah. so a lot of times when people will read my script, they'll say to me, "Oh, because uh, when you tell people, executives, managers, producers, whatever about your script, they want you to tell them what it's similar to so that they get the vibe of what you're trying to tell really? them.
2: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, they want you to say, like, this is like whatever. Um, and so a lot of times what happens to me is when I'm getting feedback on my script, people will tell me this is like this film, like, okay. So my, the film that I wrote about my dad, for example, somebody read it and said, this is like the movie history of violence, which I had never seen. Um, and so I went and watched it, and I and it is, um, you know, in the same vein. You know, they're always it's different.
0: A Viggo Mortensen one, right? The, yeah,
1: yeah. So it gives people. I mean, it doesn't get as violent as that one does at the at the end, but um, it gives people an idea of oh, okay, violence in the suburbs, in a family life kind of thing. Um, so. Uh, I, you know, I just, I don't worry about, I don't worry about it. If, if it's similar to something or not, I mean, I just feel like everything has its own journey and, yeah. and actually, you know, um, there were two Wyatt Earp movies that came out within yeah. months of each other. And so to me, that's a perfect example of, you know, don't look around and worry about what anyone else is doing just do your thing and if it's supposed to find its way out there it will you know? I felt,
0: felt bad for Kevin Costner with that because that Tombstone movie was just so much better than the Wyatt Earp movie was and <laughs> Val Kinward did like the Tombstone movie is one of my favorite movies Val Kinward did such an incredible job with that Doc Holiday character that nothing was going to compare to, to that but I, you know what the way you're saying it I think I had the total wrong take on it. It seemed like, you know, like with music, if you come up with something that's totally original sound, that makes you stand out and that's good. In your industry, it's like, and I've heard these like uh, pitches before where it's like, the guy's like, it's like Dexter meets Batman meets, you know what I mean? Like where they're trying to give like the examples like you're giving, where it's like, they're trying to do things similar. In the industry you're in, it has to be like, well, if you're saying these bunch of things, that all these things make money, then maybe we should invest in what you're doing because the objective is to make money, obviously. I mean, your objectives, you know, it has to be to someone make money, but to be creative and all that other stuff. But when somebody is from a studio or someone that's, you know, in the position to buy it, obviously they're just that's their only position is to make money. They're not creative at all, which has got to be nerve wracking for you. Cause like you got to deal with those people.
1: Yeah. Well uh, yeah. I mean, producers are in it to make money, but you know, at the same time, they also want to make the best film that they can. Um, so um, yeah, I guess it's just part of the game. I, I forget who it was. It was some, um, some writer, and I I forget, it was a woman, um, my husband and I were listening to her being interviewed and she was like, you know, every job comes with a shit sandwich. And it's just a matter of what shit sandwich you're willing to eat. And it's that's like, right.
2: yeah. you know,
1: and so is it, you know, that's why maybe some writers also become directors and producers so that they, they can maintain more control of their art you know, whereas most writers don't do that. Most writers, after you sell it, um, you don't get to control what they do to it anymore. They can, you know, change a lot of things and, you know, you don't get any say, but um, uh, I don't know. I, I just trust that people will try to make the best choices that they can for a project and everybody wants to see it be the best that it can be and
0: now, is is that the reason that you moved from the Midwest out to, like you said, you were in San Francisco for grad school or something like that? Did you, did you head out that way because you said you have to live out there to get this? You know, to well, this. really,
1: there's not a lot in San Francisco. I mean, I would have to move to L.A., really. Um, it would help me a lot if I do. And so we think about moving to L.A., but we haven't yet. Um, so... I uh, when I came back from living in Spain, I knew I wanted to go to creative writing um, school, and so I um uh, I applied to a handful of schools, um, some in New York, some in um, or just San Francisco State, where I ended up going, and I applied to um, Art Institute of Chicago. Um, and I got in um, I think everywhere, except for maybe one place. and but w- while I was waiting to hear back from the schools, I moved, I transferred to San Francisco, and um just because I put in my transfer to San Francisco, and New York, and the San Francisco one went through right away. you're put on a waiting list, and when there's spots available, it goes through. So uh, when I transferred to San Francisco, and then it just turned out that. Um, of course, this was a while ago i don't know what it's like now it's probably still more affordable. but when I was going to school, the California schools were still such that they were so ch- they were so cheap um, so uh I went to San Francisco State for very little money and I also taught creative writing there, which you know pretty much paid for it um, so I just decided to go there um, because I was already living here, even though I was considering some of these other places. um, It just worked out. And, you know, San Francisco, um, the trips that we had at the time were so uh, great for a student. I mean, I used to work, uh, we had the shuttle, the shuttle that just went up and down the West Coast. So I wouldn't um, leave my time zone and I would work like three days a week, the 5 a.m. check-in and get to my hotel. I used to bid the double Vegas layovers. So I'd get to my hotel the first day at about 10 a.m. And then I'd go to the pool, do my homework, and then, you know, go to dinner, whatever, come back, get up, do the next, you know, fly a couple flights, end up back at the hotel at noon the next day, go yeah. to the pool work on homework and then go to dinner and go out. So and then when I came home, I had the next four days off, right? And it was great. So I could go to school or I did and I did all my homework.
0: Yeah, that, that's really strange. That that seems like a job that really boy, that really it from the outside it does not seem like something that would fit going to school at all. But it totally fits it because it's it was- so-
1: and I had health benefits and flight benefits. I was like, this is the best job for a student. I got my whole master's degree and I taught right. undergraduate while I was working. Of course, we don't have those, um, that shuttle trip anymore, which was really nice because it was just nice not to have jet lag, you know, even though I was getting up early to work the 5 a.m. so I could get to the pool early to do homework and stuff like that. Um,
0: now, did someone tell you? So was flight attendant the job that you had wanted, or was it just like, this is the perfect job if you're going to school like this cause, because of all those reasons?
1: Yes, yeah, somebody told me. I would have never known. Um, so when I lived in Spain for my senior year of high school, I realized that the reason people study abroad their junior year is so that they can get themselves set up um, for when they graduate uh their senior year you know they're making connections they're going on interviews so i came home from spain with nothing set up for myself (laughs) and I, i knew i wanted to apply to creative writing schools so i just thought i would just take a year and apply to schools well my aunt said to me why don't you apply to be a flight attendant um my friend did that and she put herself through nursing school And then she was able to be a nurse a few days a week and a flight attendant a few days a week for her whole career. And it worked out really well for her. So I was like, Oh, that's great. And at the time I didn't know anything about any airlines who would be better to work for, you know, I didn't know anything. I just went through the yellow pages nice, (laughs) and called all the airlines and asked if they were hiring flight attendants. There was only one. They were hiring flight attendants and they were like, yes, we're hiring, but you must speak a foreign language. And I had just lived in Spain for years. Yeah, so like,
0: perfect. Right.
1: Perfect. <laughs> so,
0: okay. So I mean like that's a job that maybe, maybe the flights to Paris and stuff like that are less this way, but in my experience and you know, some of my flying was done to go to uh, Tahoe to go snowboarding and like, you know, Stuff that was fun with friends. You know, we would get on a plane and go somewhere with a bunch of dudes. And you know, when you're going anywhere with guys like Danny Shanahan and stuff like that, you know, they have problems for the flight attendants for sure. Like they're looking for the good-looking flight attendant. So what's sort of like? I mean, (laughs) there's got to be some pain in the ass situations. And then I hear like on planes, if someone really gets out of hand, they bring the plane down. And like you know get them off the plane. Uh, it, it just seems like that's a job that, you know, you set yourself up for a, some harassment of some sort. Like, you know, I never thought about these sort of things until I got older, but like every waitress is in a short skirt, every flight attendant's in a skirt. Like, it's like, you know. Not really. <laughs> oh no, not anymore. No. Okay. But yeah, I mean, it seems like a job that, If you're a nurse, it's sexualized, you know what I mean? Sort of a thing. Like, I I guarantee you I can find the sexy flight attendant outfit for Halloween.
1: Right. Well, you know, to be honest with you, um, the media loves to talk about the airlines for some reason. And sure, you could pick any, you know, you could pick, restaurants and you could do a story on somebody getting harassed um you know at a restaurant but you know the truth is on the airplane i find that most people behave because they are in um a group situation so that nobody can say anything to you that the people around them can't hear. Right. And so if they want to sort of um, maybe even flirt with you, they usually like, they have to come to the back of the plane or something and try to talk to you. And usually you can spot them a mile away and leave. <laughs>
2: like, yeah, there
1: oh, here comes that guy at 11B. I'm going to go up front. Call yep. me if you need me, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like. It doesn't, it doesn't really, unless you're single and you're wanting to meet people, you don't have to put yourself in a situation where somebody's flirting with you or.
0: That's, well, that's good. Cause I mean, that's a situation that I think a lot of guys don't, they don't seem to put themselves like they can never put themselves in somebody else's shoes and to make somebody uncomfortable and then be trapped with them on a plane. You know, at least, if you're in a restaurant, you're out of there in half an hour, that guy's going to be out of your hair. But if you're on a two hour flight, like this sucks. Like, here, this guy, I just shot him down in the first 15 minutes, and I got to keep looking at him for the next hour and 45. It's not fun.
1: Yeah, um, they, people don't really, I mean, they don't really ask out the flight attendants that much. Or if they do, maybe like slip them a card at the end discreetly, or I'll never forget this. This was so funny. Oh my God. I worked with this, this young man who was so sweet and so earnest. And he was from um, like the Caribbean somewhere and he had this really cute accent and his, you know, his unit, he was very thin and his uniform was just pressed beautifully and, um, He was working in first class and he was new and he comes back to me and and he says, um, Rosemary, um, the man at three, uh, D slipped me a card that says, do you know any gay bars in DC? Okay. And then he goes, and I looked at the card and I said to him, sir, I do not know any gay bars in DC, but I will be happy to ask my colleagues. <laughs> he said that out loud. Yeah, and the I... man like, whooped, slipped and I was, I looked at the man, I mean this man, you would have never guessed in a million years, would be, sure. you know, he was like, he was probably like 67 years old and he was wearing a sweater. Like, you would never think that he would be slipping. This guy just couch.
0: outed him on a plane, that is <laughs> awesome.
1: I said I said um you know what I said I don't think he really so so this is this is why he told me he's like so do you know any homosexual gay, homosexual bars to tell this man he's trying now, to do
0: wait a I minute said, wait a minute now the guy that you described to me was not a homosexual
1: it's not no but he but he, your description
0: he, sounds very homosexual
1: right so I go I said this I said I don't think he really needs a, lo- a bar. I think he no. knows how to find him. I'm like, he's hitting on you. That's why he asked you. And he and he goes, oh, "Do you mean he thinks I'm homosexual?" And I was like, yes, "Yes, he does." And he goes, "But why would he think that?" And I was like, "I don't know. I mean, you're skinny-
2: you
1: like you're skinny and you're really neat. Your, your uniform looks so nice on you." <laughs> Like, so
0: I always thought that I dressed well when we, were, when we were younger, right? And I was probably like 22. I was in an elevator in Chicago, nice hotel, and a gay guy hit on me. And I looked at him and I go, um, I'm not gay. He goes, yeah, honey, I know. And I'm like, oh, really? And he goes, hey, you're not, he was like, you're not neat enough to be a gay guy, and I'm like, oh my God, I was dressed up for this, like, are you kidding me? But yes, I mean, the guy you described sounded homosexual for sure, you know, like. Yeah.
1: Well, because it's just a stereotype, of course there's straight men that are very neat, you know.
0: I don't but know. I think,
1: was, I think it was the combination of the profession, mm-hmm. you know, because there are a lot of gay men that are flight attendants.
0: I, okay, so I have that story, on a flight, because I'm a dude in a wheelchair, they brought me in there first and the flight attendant, which was a male guy, sat down next to me and was like, just talking. to me. He's like, so, you know, we we're waiting for the rest of the, the boarding to go on and everything else. And for some reason it was taking forever. And I said to him, you know, so you like this line of work? He goes, well, there's a lot of gay guys in this line of work. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, it's kind of a gay guy thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, there you go. So I don't know if that's true or not, but it was as far as he was concerned, he thought it was true.
1: Well, you know, what's funny is um, out of San Francisco, because we have a gay, a high gay population anyways, a lot of the male flight attendants in San Francisco are gay and also some women. Um, But it's funny because if you fly out of say Denver, you know, Denver, the male population, what happened there was um, when the airlines first started hiring male stewards, as they were called, I think, at the time. Um, in Denver, there were so many ski bums. Well, I mean, what what appeals to this, you know, the kind of people that like this job, you, a lot of times are people that want to do something else on the side. You okay, know, they okay. have, they're an artist or, you know, what, or they're a ski bum.
2: Yeah. yeah they okay. don't
1: want a real career. They don't want to go sit in an office but they need health benefits and you know so in the 70s i mean i worked with some some of these straight guys were like you should have seen when i got hired in the 70s and i was you know the only male in the cabin with all of these flight attendants and it was the summer of love they're like you know aids wasn't around i mean That's this was the, they were like this was the best job
2: <laughs> i'm but,
1: sure
0: um, right that didn't work out real well being the guy there it's like being the guy who goes on for cheerleading
1: yeah. So uh, so you know a lot of the a lot of the guys in um in Denver are kind of these you know ski bum kind of jockey guys. Um so it just depends where you are.
2: Yeah, geographic.
1: Yeah. Right. And also of course you know there's a lot of people that speak a foreign language that this is a good fit for them so maybe they you know, grew up in China or they grew up in, you know, Paris or something. And so when they're looking in the United States, what job can I get? This is a good fit for them. So, you know, there's there's that as well. So yeah, I don't of, know
0: what I, my, my perception of it is. Now, is it you? I mean, it's got healthcare, you know, benefits and stuff like that. It pays well enough for like a single person, but That seems like a, a lifestyle that's not conducive to like married life or life with kids and stuff like that, because you're all over the place.
1: Yeah. I mean, it depends how you, your family operates. I mean, um, you know, a lot of flight attendants make well over six figures. So, you know, they could be, especially if they, you know, I, Thinking of my one friend, his what he has a wife and two children, and they live out in Sacramento, where you know the housing is a little bit cheaper than it is in San Francisco, and um, she just has a little job that she does from home, um, but so she's home with their boys, and you know people just people make it work. Um, you know, I think for people that are in relationships where both of the people are in the airline industry
2: yeah.
1: um that can be hard if they want to have kids yeah. um, but you know i work with a lot of flight attendants that love going on their trips because it's their me time yeah you know sure, sure. when they're home they're mommy and they're making lunches and they're cleaning and they're going to doctor's appointments and soccer practice and whatever and then they get to go, you know, to New Orleans and have dinner with some other adults and go for a nice walk. You know what I mean? So it's
0: It's a different persona they can put on when when they, when they get there. Uh, So how was the culture, you know, I traveled a little bit when we were younger and stuff like that. And like me and Danny Shanahan, speaking of New Orleans, spent 21 days in New Orleans, just, we drove down there and 21 days of debauchery. It was, you know, right up to Mardi Gras. And then we, then we left and we went up the whole East. We were gone for 35 days on this like road trip that are, you know, we lost so many brain cells. I don't know what to do about it. But, uh, when you're going from, you know, Rosie in the Midwest to San Francisco, good golly, that's a whole, that's like another planet.
1: Um, well, (laughs) You know, it's so funny, I because I went, well, so my family, we lived in um, Bloomingdale, Illinois. And then we moved to um, a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia. And then we lived in Pacific Grove, California, which is like by Monterey. Okay. And then we moved to Frankfurt. Well, first we moved to Fossmore, Illinois. And then we moved to Frankfurt, Illinois. So I moved to Frankfurt in fifth grade. And, um, so I went to, you know, junior high and high school in Frankfurt, but then I lived in Iowa city, which when I was in Iowa city, it had the highest gay per capita in the country. And it also had like a huge art school and a huge writing school and a big dance and theater community. So, you know, it had a lot going on for a small city. Um, and then I lived in Spain, you know, for a year with all different kinds of people and people from all over the world were my roommates and things. Um, and then I got hired by, you know, the airline where, because we had to have a foreign language, everybody in my training class, um, most people, uh, were not, um, American. Most people, you know, most people were, you know, Swedish and they got married and now they're living here and, you know, something like that. Um, but, uh, so when I moved to San Francisco, um, I, I don't know. I just, I mean, I planned on living with my two gay friends and it didn't work out because the housing market was so expensive and we couldn't find anything. And so I ended up renting a room from um, some other flight attendants that had only room for one person. Um, I don't know. I just like. I just slid right in i just fit in here i
0: didn't realize yeah i guess i didn't know because i didn't know you that well that you had transplanted so much i didn't know that you were so alone now was your was your father in the military or something before
1: he was Uh, in the military but that's but he had left the military um he was an fbi agent um and we moved so much because every time they offered him he loved exploring he loved adventure and every time they said we are going to offer transfers to this location, he would volunteer our family. So we moved like every two years just because he was always volunteering for us to move. Because he grew up in um, Beverly and Chicago and he wanted to like live in other parts of the country um, and he never had. So we just moved all the time.
0: Yeah, no, I totally get it too. I mean, I grew up, in Bridgeview and then moved out to Frankfurt and then that was it like you know been in the midwest my entire life when me and Danny went to New Orleans we were there like two weeks and I'm like hey we're going to run out of money let's just get jobs and you know Dan was not that great on like going to work to begin with so you know that didn't work out but I was totally I love New Orleans I thought that that whole area was just it was a terrific time I liked the the food and the music and everything else was terrific down there. But uh, so I could have easily just gotten a job and started doing her. I was already doing carpentry work. So like I, you know, I could have done that down there. I had a trade. And then later on we went to two different trips out to like uh Breckenridge for one of them and out to Vail for another one. And I, the guy I was with, I was like, dude, let's just find jobs. Cause I was totally ready to be out of, you know, the whole Illinois area It's like, it's just so boring to look at. Um, I sell real estate now. One of the things I always push with people is like, listen, even if the house is not perfect, but there's a view, like think about it because almost everybody I know gets tired of the house, but a view seems to never get old. If you're looking at mountains, if you're looking at a lake, that kind of thing just seems to stay for a real long time. So that's cool that you were everywhere like that. You at least had a chance to find out what you like and what you don't like. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to why, you know, why not get to LA and do this? I mean, what what does your husband do that keeps him in where you're at right now? Or is it just the home prices and stuff like that, that kind of keep you around there?
1: Well, no, I mean... San Francisco and l a are both expensive um, because I want to write features, not necessarily television at this yeah. point for to be a feature writer, you could live really anywhere it's just um, it's just beneficial for you if you can go spend time there to make connections um, But I've just been trying to go down there um, when I can and make connections. So you know, I had a film that was got into a film fest there, and I went, um, and I I made a new friend, and um, and I got into another film fest there, and that new friend came to that to the other one to support me, and you know, so you know, I'm just been going because it's close you know, um, been going down there when I can at this point, the, um, I'm based in San Francisco, so I like working normally when we go back to normal. Um, hopefully, um, I like doing the Paris route cause it's only three days and it's worth a lot of hours. And then I have four days off. Sure. Um, we don't have, LAX, we do have a base there, but LAX is so saturated um, with flights already that we don't have very good international, uh, we don't have that many international routes out of LAX. So if I were to be based in LAX, I would be flying these long domestic days, like I'm flying right now. So most of my friends that live in LA, um, actually, that are flight attendants actually are based in San Francisco. So they fly up to San Francisco and fly their international trip and then fly back down to LA. Um, so it adds that commute on. So it's like, do I want to commute every week and be a flight attendant or do I want to commute and go down there sometimes to try to network for film?
2: Yeah. You know
0: I mean? Oh, the, the hustle and bustle has got to be, and the, the networking, situation there there's there's so much going on I mean I always hope you know anyone I talk to obviously like I'd love to see so where would I find something that like you said you had some some stuff that you went to a film festival and stuff like that is there a link you can send me that I could actually like watch the production that was put on or you know like it it, you said there's some small scenes and stuff like that like where would I find something you wrote that I could like see
1: Well, things that I wrote that you can see, I have um, a short film produced, Um, it used to be on YouTube, I don't think it's still there, or I think you might need a passcode or something, I think it's on Vimeo or something, Um, and, um, but... Yeah. So the film festivals, they generally, um, because my scripts aren't produced yet. Yes. Um, you know, so they will have some screenings or sometimes the screenings are in the movie theaters and then the festivals like kind of alongside of it. Um, just depends how it's run, but there's actually really good ones in Chicago, um, that you could go to, or maybe bring your son to, or, you know, they're, they're usually like three or four days. You might want to go, um, just for like, a day you know and they have panel discussions uh it's very educational i mean i think your sons would really enjoy it i mean even if they ultimately don't want to go into film just to go for a day and kind of hear what people are saying might be interesting
0: See, you know i always thought that uh well the the film stuff we have such a structured uh everything around me is about work right so like we're doing construction um you know my sons uh they're they're gonna go to college to be engineers and there I had a crew of five guys that worked for me before I got injured and I would you know almost all my guys I would take my sons over those guys any day just because the work ethic and then they do everything the way that I taught them to do it and everything else so like it works out good Um uh, and then I think like a year ago I started thinking boy I really neglected the arts as far as like trying to get my sons to do stuff. It's always been really based on like math and science and then wrestling takes so much time. And you know we travel for that and everything else that I, you know, I said something to my, to my one son, like junior year, I'm like, Hey, what about like doing a play or something? And he looked at me like my head was on fire. He was like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, why don't you're like, you know, like you're going to go into senior year. Like, I don't know, do something different. Like, and he was like, that's the craziest thing in the world. But I almost think like I should buy like a drum kit or I should do something so that they get the arts because it's so important. Um, I, I took some college courses like psychology and stuff, and it was immensely interesting to see how someone's mind works and then to read like a novel that somebody developed a character and you see like that that person must have taken psychology courses because they, you know, put certain characteristics into a character and stuff like that. So I don't know, you know, if if you've done that or not, or if that, you know, if that's how you derive something, like how do you do something that's not every character you're going to write, you don't have those experiences. So how do you put yourself in those shoes?
1: I guess you just imagine. And then also, I mean, listening to people, um, you know, we know you mean, everybody knows so many crazy people. Right. Yeah. And even working on the plane, you know, I hear all these stories from coworkers and also from passengers. And so, um, you know, you can, empathize with people's experience, um, just listening to not only the words they're saying, but the emotions that they're having and relaying a story. And um, you know, I do think the arts is about using your imagination. Um, so
0: yeah, no, that's great. But uh have you ever written anything and gotten any backlash from somebody because they didn't feel like it was when I when I see things that are written uh Um, I I like movies. I do I like to catch a movie if I'm in the gym or something like that. And authenticity is important to me. Like I like when something is, and I do a lot of on my phone where I'll like, I'm always a little dismayed when somebody writes uh, a movie and there's a character in there. That's not actually like, it's a, it's historical, the, the movie, but there's a character in there. That's like a compilation of three or four people it's not an actual person Do you know what I'm saying
1: yeah yeah you have to do that sometimes in film
0: yes right i know i know it's a necessity because you yeah. just can't have all these people coming in and out right so write one uh there was a movie that just came out bombshell that was about the fox oh, news yeah.
1: yeah i saw and, that
0: right the one kaylee person is not a real person she's uh the robbie chick uh She's uh, a composite of of some people, which made the movie work and everything else, but it was so weird to have that character in there when the all of the other characters were totally people like, that they made up to look at. Sharice Theron, like you almost lose that it's her because the prosthetics and everything the on her is face. Is so yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, that just happens because films have, you know, a finite amount of time to be told. Right. And, you know, you can't introduce three, four different people, uh, you know, if you can just condense it into one person having all those different experiences so that the audience can relate um you know that's what you're trying to get across and I think that's the main objective you know I guess you know that would be one difference with um like writing it out uh as as a novel or not even as non-fiction you have the time to explain things as as long as you want to
0: right 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 you know so do you find that uh when you're writing these characters or writing the, cause it's, you say there's always a nugget of some historical thing, but then you do the silly putty thing where you're changing the people up a little bit and stuff like that. How, what is your process for that? Do you have like a pen and paper or something around you all the time in case something comes to mind that you want to add uh, to somebody or you want to alter something or put something in a character do you get something and write it down right away? Or the the creative writing to me is is interesting because again, like it's the original writing thing, right? So like it's the artist that does something totally original. What's the process for you? How do you make interesting characters?
1: Um, you know, it's always different. I guess it kind of depends on the project. Like the one that I just did, um, the based off of my family, the the characters were sort of um, you know based off of my actual family members. Um, and then, you know, just uh, I don't know, I guess you just kind of um, sometimes characters will will sort of just blend um different. Qualities from different people kind of come together in your mind. Um, you know, I mean, I I wrote one screenplay that has a roommate character, and that roommate is a compilation of at least two different roommates that I had, both crazy. Um, put it all, put it all into one. You know, <laughs> and um, so. I don't know. It just, uh, part of it's subconscious that brings everything together for you. It's not all, um, plotted.
0: Got it. it. I mean, it's just an interesting, you know, there's not a lot of people who their job or, you know, even their side hustle or whatever it is, is to sort of be creative. You know what I mean? Like it's, if you're a garbage man, you're just picking up the garbage. If you're doing carpentry there's a little bit of creative that you can do in there. Like if someone wants you to do something, you can come up with something that's different than what you normally do. But if you're someone who's just building, you know, houses in a subdivision, you're really not doing anything creative at all. So it's just interesting. It almost seems like you'd have to, like your other job where you're being a flight attendant, there's not a lot of creative stuff going on there. Like it seems like you'd have to shift gears to get into, like if someone said to me, all right, Bill, you know, you, we're going to pay you a million dollars, but you got to write a novel. I do not know how long that would take me. And I would have to like shut everything else out to be like, I got to develop characters and I got to like, I got to make it like somewhat interesting. I guess I could draw from people that I knew, but mentally that would take an enormous amount of work. Do you sleep? I mean, does, do you wake up in the middle of the night with like thoughts on that stuff?
1: Oh, yeah, I get ideas. Yeah, oh, right. Right, I mean, right, I just had an idea. Right, so do
0: you, do you grab something right away and write it down before you lose it? Because
1: I sometimes, feel like I
0: ideas and then I forget them.
1: Yeah, sometimes. I mean, a lot of times during the day I can just put it in the notes in my phone. Um, there you go. But um, yeah, sometimes I'll have a little piece of paper by my bed, but usually I remember, um, yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, I'm tired of it. I come up with ideas for it's it's gonna sound corny and stupid, but I come up with ideas for inventions and like modifications for something that I'm working on or something like that all the time. And I will at three in the morning be like, This is the greatest idea, and then go to sleep. And when I wake up, I'm like, it's gone. Like I totally forgot what I was gonna do, or something like that. So I just would think that, you know, a character there's so much to somebody and I find the most entertaining movies that I watch are the ones where there's so much to the character. Like, you know, if a character's doing a certain thing, um, and then you find out that they were, you know, uh, molested or something like that as a kid, or you find out like the backstory, like you were saying with the Batman thing means so much to that character. Right. So, you know, it just, it seems like to build somebody out of nothing or out of just a little bit of something, seems like a monumental amount of work, Rosie, to be honest with well, you. Like,
1: you know, <laughs> I'll leave you with the food metaphor and then I'll go make my dinner. There you go. It's kind of like an onion. Bless you. It's right. kind of like a character is kind of like an onion where oh. you might think of the core of them like oh they're a policeman or whatever
2: right
1: and then over time like you'll wake up in the middle of the night and go oh my god but he wanted to be a baseball player and then oh my god he's divorced oh my god and like you'll just kind of the the different layers will just kind of come to you so you just have to sometimes i don't think you can really rush it or at least i can't You just have to let it sort of um, (laughs) marinate. There
0: you go. There you go. Cool. Cool. Well, I I appreciate you giving me some of your time. Uh, I enjoyed the talk. If something comes up that is big and everything else, by all means, like I want to hear about it. So get a hold of me and let's uh, talk again sometime. Good luck. And uh, hope to hear uh, something big coming out of, uh, you know, what Rosie's writing real soon.
1: Thank you so much Bill. It's great to see you and to talk to you.
0: Terrific. Thanks, Rosie.
1: Have a fun uh, vacation. I hope it works out. <laughs> well, the-
0: we'll see. We'll see. They they won't let us dirty dirty Americans in Canada right now, so <laughs> we'll see if they let us in there at all.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: All right. See ya. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh if you like the podcast, I know this was a short one, uh, please click the subscribe button. Um, you know, love to get subscribers. Love to hear uh, any input from what you think uh, about the podcast. Uh, constructive, I don't care. You know, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, but I'd like to hear what, you know, someone has to say about it. So please subscribe to the YouTube channel, the podcast can be found on uh, Google Play, uh, the uh, Apple Store, and
2: uh, um, Podbean. All right. Thanks so much.